Romans chapter 8, for whom he that is God foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he foreordained, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Every blessing of salvation that is given to us by God according to his grace is a benefit of Christ. It is in virtue of Christ's death, in particular, that we are no longer under the condemnation of sin. Forgiven of our sin and accounted righteous before and by God. It is in virtue of Christ that we are sanctified, that we are caused to grow and increase in knowledge of God's grace in Christ. Indeed, it is in virtue of Christ and his death that we are enabled to put to death the sin that remains in us. It is in virtue of Christ that even as we experience temporal death, as we pass, as it were, from this life to the next, experiencing that which is unnatural, that which is even part of the curse against our sin, that we are nevertheless brought into God's presence. And sin is in the inner man. Sin is in the soul completely, finally abolished. Every particular aspect of our salvation, from our calling into fellowship with Jesus Christ and to our final conformity to Christ in body and soul, all of it is not only in fellowship with Christ, that is in union with Jesus Christ, but all of it is because of Christ. To use older language, we might say that Christ is the meritorious cause of our salvation. Every blessing and benefit is ours because Jesus Christ died for us upon the cross. To be a little bit more specific, or to think of this in terms of the problem of sin and the effects of sin upon us and the way in which Christ's work avails for us, we might think, first of all, of our condemnation before God. Adam sinned, 
And in virtue of Adam's sin, we all sinned. In him we sinned. And because of his sin, we are accounted as unrighteous before God, guilty before God, condemned before God. And as Jesus Christ makes satisfaction for our sin upon the cross, and in virtue of that dying for us and bearing the curse of our sin, we are justified. All of our sin is forgiven, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us so that we are accounted as righteous before God. Not only as if we had never sinned, but as if we were indeed fully obedient, perfectly obedient to God's law and so righteous. That is, we were in sin condemned before God. Now, in virtue of Christ, we are justified before God. But there's also the reality of the sin which is in us and the corruption of sin that is ours in virtue of Adam. He sinned. In him we sinned. And sin is passed down. This original sin is passed down to us. It is ours inherited And so we are born corrupt in sin. We might say under the power and dominion of sin. But in virtue of Christ, we are changed. In virtue of Christ's death upon the cross, that corruption is we might say, itself put to death. And we are enabled by the Spirit who brings life to put to death the sin which remains. And ultimately and finally, even in the soul and all the powers of the soul, we are glorified in the likeness of Christ. As the Apostle Paul speaks, for example, then in Romans chapter 8, he summarizes at the very beginning of the chapter the reality, the benefit of justification that is to be found in virtue of Christ. The reality that there is now, presently, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus Precisely because Jesus Christ has in our very flesh condemned sin in the flesh. But it is also the case, as Paul continues to speak, that it is in virtue of Christ. In virtue of Christ, not only that we with all of creation will be we might say glorified, that even creation itself will be delivered from the bond of of corruption, the same deliverance that we ourselves have as the children of God. 
But presently, as we wait for this with patience, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit who is ours in virtue of Christ, is working in us. And the Apostle Paul speaks then in summary fashion in verses 29 and 30 of this chapter to tell us that God by His grace chose us, ordained us from before the foundation of the world to a particular end, which was conformity to the image of His Son. This is the final end, the final goal, if you will, of our salvation. And to this end, those whom God foreordained, He also called, justified, glorified. He called us out of a state of sin and into a state of grace and union with Jesus Christ. He declared us pardoned of all of our sin and accepted as righteous in Christ, that is, no longer condemned. And he glorified us, granting us the spirit at present, who is the spirit of life, who will indeed finally and fully conform us to Jesus Christ. But all of this is because God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Verse 32. God, in order to conform us to the image of his son, delivered his son up for us. And it is in virtue of the son, in virtue of Christ's dying For us, that we are justified, that we are sanctified, that we are glorified. Now the catechism that we have been studying, an orthodox catechism, draws our attention to these benefits of Christ. What the Spirit brings to us in our salvation is what Christ has merited for us upon the cross. What the Spirit brings to us is indeed our justification and our sanctification or finally glorification. And in This respect, the catechism draws attention previously to the fact that because the cross, because Christ's death is satisfaction for our sins, we no longer, we as sinners, are not, cannot make satisfaction for our sins. Christ has died. And in virtue of his death, in virtue of that sin-bearing, curse-bearing death, we are forgiven, pardoned, righteous, indeed justified. Even indeed, 
Christ's death is meritorious. Not only of our justification, but we might also say our sanctification at present and our future glorification. And this is what we find particularly expressed in questions 41 and 42. And the focus in these two particular questions is not on the benefit or the blessing per se. That is, the focus is not on the way in which the blessing of sanctification and the blessing of glorification is related to the totality of Christ's work. Because as we'll come to see, it is also in view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are justified, sanctified, glorified. But here the catechism is asking specific questions and answering specific questions concerning the death of Christ, even the burial of Christ, and the way in which those realities are related to the blessings and benefits of salvation that are ours. How does the death of Jesus Christ affect even our present existence as Christians and also our future? And in particular, there is a pressing question. Why is it that we die if Christ died for us? And if that death made satisfaction for our sin and for all of the effects of sin, even the curse against sin, which is death, why do we still physically die? And this leads into then the way in which the death of Christ impinges not only upon that future reality of when we die, but the way in which it affects us even presently now in our life before the face of God. We are here then given a window, a further window into what the scriptures teach regarding the perfection of Christ's death for us. The perfection of his satisfaction for our sin. Because though we often think primarily of our justification, that blessing of sins forgiven, that blessing of being accounted righteous in the sight of God in virtue of Christ's death, The scriptures also teach, and as summarized here by the catechism, there is blessing for us, not only in that there is no condemnation now, but there is also present, we might say, mortification. Present putting to death of the sin that remains, and even the future, the final abolition of sin which is part and parcel of our being conformed to the image of the Son of God, who in our flesh was delivered up for us and for our salvation. And so we want to consider these two questions and consider the way in which 
both our present and our future is shaped by the death, indeed the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus Christ. What, are, what is the virtue and benefit of Christ and his death? And we want to notice two things specifically. First of all, we should draw attention to what the scriptures teach regarding the future and final abolition of sin. The future and final abolition of sin. God foreordained us. That is, verse 29, he chose us. He predestined us. Not in view of anything in us. Not in view of any kind of foreseen faith. But solely according to his good pleasure. He predestined us to a particular end or goal. This one. To be conformed to the image of his son. To be made body and soul like unto the son incarnate. To be, we might even say, perfected such that we are caused to Participate in some manner, bearing fully, insofar as it is possible for us as creatures to bear the image and likeness of the Son of God incarnate. Peter talks about this in his second epistle in telling us that we have been saved, as it were, to be partakers of the divine nature. That does not mean that we are like God, as God is God, but it means that we are conformed to God as is capable for a creature. We are made to be precisely what we ought to have been, And precisely what Christ has made us to be. There is a certain mystery here. And yet, as we look into the scriptures, we can see that this is, at the very least, a conformity to God's moral perfection. Knowledge. Righteousness, holiness. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 both speak. Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3 and verse 10. Both speak of a kind of conformity to Jesus Christ being remade in his image. Such that we have an understanding of God and the truth of God that is like unto Christ according to his human nature. We have a righteousness that is wrought in us and a holiness that is wrought in us that is like unto the perfection of Christ 
and his righteousness and his holiness. John tells us that when Jesus comes again, we will be made like unto him. Here is the goal, the final goal of our salvation. Conformity to Christ in the soul, but also bodily. And Paul takes up this particular truth here in this context, even as he speaks of our being glorified together with Christ, even as he speaks of our being raised up in the likeness of Christ, our mortal bodies being raised in the likeness of Jesus Christ through the spirit that presently dwells in us. And he speaks even of the bodily resurrection in the likeness of Christ more fully in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But the point here, particularly, is that the goal of our salvation is final and full conformity to the image of Christ, soul and body together. And if this is the goal, the goal is attained, merited, as Jesus Christ is the one who is the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus Christ died and rose again to this end. Verse 32 of the chapter, God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And Paul is using this in the context of reminding us, assuring us that Jesus died and Jesus was raised and Jesus is at the right hand of God. Jesus is making intercession for us such that nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That is, we will be brought to this end of conformity to Christ. Nothing can stop it. And nothing can stop it because of what Jesus has done. But there is, between the initiation of grace in us, if you will, and this final conformity to Christ, there are many things which intervene. Hence the need to be assured that this goal is certain. This end is certain. And one of the questions that remains is if this is all true. If Jesus has died for us. And because Jesus has died for us, we will be conformed to his image. We have been called. We have been justified. And Paul can even speak of being glorified. Verse 30. If all of this is true, then why do we die? Question 41 of the Catechism. But since Christ died for us, why must we also die? Why is it that if Christ's death makes a perfect satisfaction for sin and the curse against sin, such that even presently 
we are no longer condemned. Why is it that we still die? Why does it seem like on the one hand the curse is taken away, satisfied, but on the other hand is not? Well, as the Catechism answers, our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. We don't die in order to pay the penalty for our sins before God. But our death is the abolishing of sin and our passage into everlasting life. Our death is, as we sometimes say and sing, but our entrance into glory. And this entrance into glory brings with it the abolition of sin in the inner man. Death is unnatural. Death is the curse against Sin, And as that curse works itself out in terms of our inner man, it means that death brings with it the separation of body and soul. Unnaturally so. This is not the way it was supposed to be. But that death that we experience as believers, unnatural as it may be, is part and parcel of God conforming us to the image of his Son. Because it brings with it, once and for all, the removal of sin from the soul. The taking away of the sin that remains fully and finally. There is no condemnation at present. For us, because of Christ. But there is what we might call remaining corruption. Paul addresses this remaining corruption, particularly in chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Romans. And certainly we don't have time to deal with that fully, though we'll deal with it momentarily with respect to to our second point. But here, as we are continuing to think of the abolition of sin, what we have in our death is the final removal, the full removal of any and all remaining vestiges of sin. Jesus, in John chapter 5, speaks particularly of this reality. In chapter 5, he is speaking in this context of uh, his work and the Father's work and the fact that what the Father does, the Son does. And so not only are the Father and the Son one in essence, but they are one in power, one in operation. And in particular, 
he draws attention in verse 24 to the reality that eternal life and coming not unto judgment is something that the Father and the Son do. It's a work that they accomplish. Indeed, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth him that sent me hath eternal life and cometh not into judgment, but hath passed out of death into life. Certainly Jesus speaks of what we might call regeneration, that is the beginning of this inward renewal of the soul, our being brought from death to life, and yet sin remains. But it will be abolished. It will be finally and fully put to death. There will be a passing out of death and into life. Verily, verily, he continues, I say unto you, the hour cometh and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear him shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, even so he gave he to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is a Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour cometh in which all that are in the tomb shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. But here is the reality that as we pass from this life into the next, if you will, as we die, there is a final putting to death of sin. Passing out of the death that is associated with sin and into life. Paul in Romans 7 bemoans, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who shall deliver me from the present reality of my struggle with remaining sin? And he ascribes it to Christ. And then in chapter 8 moves on to the things that we have seen to speak of. The promise of the resurrection. The present help of the Spirit. And the powerful working of the Spirit to bring us to glory in conformity to Christ. And even though in mystery we wait in that state for the resurrection of the body, the soul, the soul's reuniting with the body, even upon our death, we know the benefit of Christ's death. Sin will be no more in us. Sin will be no more in us. It is true that now, even the sin that we commit in thought and word and deed, 
even those sins of omission, those things that we, duties before God that we leave undone. It is true that now, in virtue of Christ's death, those sins do not condemn us. It is true even that Adam's sin and the guilt of that sin as it is credited to us, that in virtue of Christ and his death, there is no condemnation to us on that account. We can say all of the guilt of all of our sin both original sin and actual sin, sins of omission, sins of commission. All of it is gone forever. The guilt of that sin no longer credited to our account because Jesus Christ became sin for us. Because Jesus Christ became a curse for us. Because Jesus Christ died for us. But, the corruption of sin, the stain of sin, even actual sins, something of that remains in us. In the life, even of the believer. Hence Luther's phrase, justified, yet also a sinner. But that is not the undoing of God's purpose. We will be conformed to the image of his son, body and soul. There will be the removal of all of the stain of sin. The removal of all the corruption of sin. The removal of all actual sin. Think about that for a moment. There isn't a second of your day, even as a believer, fully And finally, justified before God and by God. There isn't a moment at present in which sin, in which the violation of God's law and missing the mark of his holiness, there isn't a moment in which you are fully finally free from the reality of sin. From the corruption of sin. Yes, free from the bondage of sin. Free from the dominion of sin. And we'll see that momentarily. But not free from the reality of remaining sin. When you die, even though, even in that death, there is this unnatural rending of that which should not be rent apart, body and soul. 
There is a passing into the presence of God and with it, the abolishing of all sin, the removal of all of that sin. Sin no more. Sin can't enter into the presence of God. And so God in his mercy finally removes it from you. It's so difficult for us to think of this reality because, again, at present, that's not our experience. But here is the truth of Holy Scripture. As a part of your final conformity to Jesus Christ, any and all vestiges of the old man, any and all vestiges of sin, any thought, any word, any deed which is contrary to God and his law will all be taken away. And life eternal is yours. It is yours presently. And again, there is both present and future in all of this. It is yours presently. But then it will be yours, at least in soul, fully. There will be a glorification of your soul. There will be a perfecting of your soul so that your very existence will be, even though you remain a creature, will be a life of glorifying God and enjoying God precisely the way it was supposed to be. Sin excluded. You, dear believer, were foreordained to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. You were foreordained to be one of His brethren. And in that purpose, to that end, He called you, He justified you, He glorified you. At present, we live between justification or calling and justification on the one hand, and glorification on the other. But you will be brought to glory. You will be free. Not just from the condemnation of sin, not just from the bondage of sin, not just from the dominion of sin, as you already are, but free even from the thought and practice of sin. Free from sin being conceived in your mind in any way, whether by temptation from without or temptation from within. Free. Free. And even as you live now and possess eternal life now, 
eternal life consisting of knowing God and him whom he sent, even Jesus Christ. You will know it in its fullness. You will know God. You will know Christ without any sin whatsoever and with the purity that is yours in virtue of Jesus Christ. But all of this because of Jesus Christ. Death is not a satisfaction for sin, as one has said. But it is an admonition of the remaining sin in us, an admonition of the greatness of the evil of sin, an abolishing of the remaining sin in us, and lastly, a passing into, the etern- into eternal life. He says this, for the transli- transition of the faithful to eternal life is effected by temporal death. Even what seems to be an evil is used of God for good to bring us to conformity to his son. I said there were two things. Yet, the second thing will have to wait given the passing of time. But even with the passing of time, dear brethren, we are closer to this abolition of sin. Closer to knowing in our very souls the full reality of eternal life. All of which is a benefit of Christ dying for us. There is a virtue in Christ. In his resurrection, yes. In his ascension, yes. In his current intercession for us, there is virtue. But there is virtue also in his death. There is a blessing that comes to us that even as we die, we are blessed. Blessed not by anything that we have done, but blessed because of what Christ has done. Sin removed. Sin gone. That which defines so much of your life now. And even what defines your life in the struggle against sin. Seeking to put sin to death. All of it gone. with the enjoyment of life forevermore, as that alone which you experience. All because Christ's body was broken. All because Christ's blood was shed. And so even as we come to the table and partake of this sacrament, as we hear and see this proclamation of Christ's death until he come, What we see in this sacrament is the death of death. The abolishing even of sin in our dying in virtue of Christ 
dying for us. Death will be but our entrance into glory. And that entrance into glory means that sin will no longer beset us. But it means that we will enjoy life forevermore.